I want to introduce you to three different groups who are converging upon each other on a particular Sabbath day in human history. Only one of these groups is aware that this morning will be glorious, altogether eternal. The other two are going about the business of their normal human lives. Group one, men, women, and children getting out of bed, getting themselves ready, having breakfast, beginning that process whereby people attempt as best they can to get to church on time and looking as presentable as possible. There are couples still having arguments that started earlier yesterday afternoon. There are kids of all ages saying, but why do we have to go? There are discussions over what should be worn, what matches, what doesn't, how one's hair should look, etc., etc. And overall, there is this numbing sense shared by almost all of the people soon to be sitting in the pews that all of this is performative, that it doesn't particularly matter, and that frankly, nothing is going to happen. All of these people leave from their homes all over the town, and they exchange that particular knowing look arriving at the church. They're all in on this week-by-week proceduralism. That's group one. Group two. This is a smaller group, perhaps four or five young men, who've only just started following in the footsteps of a youngish teacher, one Jesus from Nazareth. The first two had met him while in the company of John, called the baptizer, the other two or three in the days to follow that. Here's everything they currently know about this Jesus. He's 30 years old. He's been a carpenter until about a month ago. He's wonderful to be around, and he may be God. They're uncertain, quite naturally, about that last one. But they're beginning to wonder seriously. Well, now they're with him on a jaunt up into the West Country, back to his hometown, And they too are crossing the town's central square toward that synagogue. They are looking around at the bored, impassive faces of group one. These first disciples are likewise expecting very little from the morning to come. They are group two. Group three. A group more difficult to define. You see... Group three is the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These three are one, yet differentiated. They are immortal, yet one of them is currently walking around mortal. They are timeless, yet for all time, they have been trying to get a hold of the hearts of humankind. It was against them that the fall was the offense that it was. It was they who perpetually tried to intervene, to, to break through unto humanity. It was their heart, their intentionality, that kept trying covenantally to make a way where seemingly there was no way. 
And now, having stepped down from the throne of heaven, having been conceived, carried, born of a woman, having lived out an experience of our flesh, our humanity for these 30 years, one of the third group's members is walking across the central square of his earthly hometown, preparing to announce the coming of the way of the kingdom of heaven. So again, I just want to position your understanding of the scene to come. Group one, expecting nothing except the boredoms of a religiously ritualistic morning. Group two, intrigued by the man walking beside them, yet having no idea of who he is, what he's come to be about. And group three, absolutely in love with their creation, incarnationally committed to restoration, personally present in the grandest stroke of glory ever to be seen by anyone ever. Here comes their convergence in a small synagogue in Nazareth. Do you have all that in mind now? Well, Jesus and his friends enter into the small, simple, whitewashed interior. The men are over here. The women are over there. Toward the front, Jesus can see his mother, Mary, sitting alongside his sisters. His brothers are sitting midway back on the men's side. He personally had always sat, at least during the years before his father Joseph's death, in the third row back uh, toward the west wall. He and his friends now take whatever seats are still available. There is a ripple of interest, starting with the men, then echoing over to the women, as they notice their village carpenter has returned home. Just over a month before, he had completed his final order and then disappeared. And ever since, they have only heard rumors and speculations from up and down the Galilee. Well, here he is back. Someone whispers to the synagogue leader who walks up to the front, turns to face all, and then nods his head at Jesus. One of our own has returned, he says, gesturing to him. Jesus, would you be willing to read today's scripture and to offer a word? There is absolutely nothing strange about this request. Jesus is a known quantity to these people. He is of age to be a reader at 30. Plus, there is word that he's been teaching in the precincts nearer the sea. Why not hear what he's been speaking about here in his hometown? Group one, all turn their eyes to regard him. Group two, turn to let him out of the row. The incarnate manifestation of group three slips out of his seat, approaches the front, takes the scroll offered for his reading. It's important that we imagine his reaction when that day's passage is pointed out for him. The one who has been trying for all time to come to grips with his people, the one filled with the Spirit, one with the Father, 
the embodied reality of the good news of the kingdom, the savior of the lost, the healer of the blind, the rescuer of the human heart, the prince of peace, the thrower of the great heavenly party. How do you think his face looks as he reads this aloud? (laughs) The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to send out the broken in deliverance, (laughs) to herald the year of the Lord's favor, his jubilee. The sound of his voice, the near laughter of the cadence with which he reads or really speaks from the heart these words, echoes in the whitewashed interior of his hometown synagogue. For some reason, tears have sprung to the eyes of all his hearers. They have no idea why the sound of the carpenter's voice heard by them so often before should suddenly strike them this way. He hands back the scroll to the leader's assistant. He crosses the front of the room and takes a seat on the teacher's chair. Utter silence. It is as if everyone, for no known reason that they can name, is holding their breath. Jesus eyes them all. He allows the moment to hang heavy in the air. He studies their familiar faces. Then he smiles. Today, even as you've been listening, the scripture has been fulfilled, finished. My friends, about a month ago, it struck me that this may be one of the most instructive moments we ever witness in the life of Jesus. At the very beginning of what we would call his ministry years, he's essentially saying he's already finished. His personal presence is the eternal answer to our hearts every question. Yes, we still require to know him better, to hear his teaching, to watch the miracles in all they reveal to us of the heart of God. Yes, the cross will represent the required atonement for our sin, the resurrection, the needful freeing we require from death. But here with Jesus, here at the beginning of his ministry, here with some of his first hearers hearing his teachings, he is telling them and us what? that he himself is the place of the Spirit's presence, that he himself is the good news of the kingdom, that he himself is the place of perpetual, once-for-all-time freedom, that he himself is the experience of finally receiving sight, that he himself is deliverance, both for each of us and for others, that he himself 
is the jubilee, the final freeing, the heart's release. That he himself is the beginning, means, and end of everything intended for humankind since the moment of our creation. My friend, is that how you understand the totality of the person of Jesus? Is he himself for you everything that he truly is? Decades later, one of the four or five disciples who was with him on that day had this to say about the reality of who he was and is. John wrote, I am writing to you about something which has always existed, yet which we ourselves actually saw and heard, something which we had opportunity to observe closely and even to hold in our hands, and yet, as we know now, was something of the very word of life himself. For it was life which appeared before us. We saw it. We are eyewitnesses to it and are now writing to you about it. It was the very life of all ages, the life that has always existed with the Father, which actually became visible in person to us mortal men. Two thoughts here. One, anything you and I do in the name of Jesus, I believe must answer to the scene in Nazareth. Is it like that? Is it like him being like that? And two, I would say anyone desiring to follow Jesus, and especially those who would say they would lift up the name of Jesus, they must have done business with every part of Jesus' self-description. They must be possessed by his Spirit a walking embodiment that he is, in fact, good news. They must be free with the freedom already offered by him. Their eyes must be opened by him. They must be sent out on their way already with his deliverance. They must look like, smell like, taste like, feel like, his own never-ending jubilee. So my question for us, friends, is this. Is that us?